Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an English actress, producer, author and gender advisor for the United Nations. She also runs her own production company, Cassini Productions, which she set up to promote female filmmaking and champion the voices of black women. In 2022, she was included in Forbes magazine's 30 Under 30 list. Her first book, This Thread of Gold, A Celebration of Black Womanhood, provides an inspiring look at how women of colour throughout time have found a way to survive and thrive despite the oppression they've faced. Catherine Joy White, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, there is this wonderful, wonderful quote in your book, which I'm just going to find. You say, I often think about what happens in the in-between, in the space between infancy, childhood and adulthood. How do we become what forms us? And that's what I want to know about you. Ah, throwing my own words back at me. Good question. (laughs) Yes. I speak about it a lot, I think, in the book as well. And it's something that I've realise the older I get is that I'm so formed by my mother and also by the women around me who raised me Um, and my dad of course as well but I think they've given me a particular sense of independence which I think I wouldn't have said as a child I felt like I didn't necessarily have the freedom I had quite a strict upbringing didn't necessarily have the freedom to explore but actually what that meant was I lost myself in books and in characters and in worlds and in real life historical figures And I had a conversation the other day with my dad where I remember at one point I wanted to be a lawyer and I was going to apply to university and study law. And he doesn't always involve himself, I would say, hugely. But one evening he just sort of said very quietly, don't be a lawyer. And I really took that on board and I just thought, he wouldn't say that if he if he didn't mean it. And I went on to study English literature and French, which probably is hugely influential in where we are today. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about that childhood. You were in uh, Northampton. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In Northampton in the East Midlands. And it's, I don't know, I think it's home, maybe. I, I don't really have a sense of home. I think I've been quite transient and I don't have too many friends left there from school anymore. But my parents are still there and it is, I think it's a space where, because I wasn't in a big city, I did have a lot of creativity and would make games and worlds for my sisters and my friends. And yeah, it's it's an interesting place. It's not the nicest place. I don't know if you've ever been. I don't want to say anything bad about it because it's where I'm from, but there's it's a, not the nicest there. place. The, the, the there's a Dern, Derngate Theatre, isn't <laughs> yeah. there? Yeah. I think I've performed shoes. there a long oh, time ago. <laughs> but your mother's originally from Jamaica, and yeah. I wonder if you've got much of a relationship with Jamaica. Do you go there? I've been once. I went for the first time in the summer I turned 21 because she was born there, left when she was seven and has only been back once, I think, age 18, which there's a whole story there that I haven't ever quite uncovered. I want to one day. But I turned 21 that summer and was just desperate to go and, I suppose, discover a bit about where I'm from. And my aunties and grandparents, well, not anymore, my grandparents are older, but my aunties go back all the time and they still had that tie. So I went with Laura, my middle sister, and we kind of went on this heritage tracing trip which was extraordinary and also quite scary because everyone warned us it's not a place for two young girls to go on their own and we sort of said oh we'll be fine and then had lots of scary incidents. Mm, mm. Now you also travelled to Madagascar in fact you taught there. Yeah I spent a summer teaching there which was absolutely incredible it was all part of that was when I was I think end of my year abroad so learning French and wanting to use my French but also wanting to do something a bit different with that and have always loved teaching and spending time with children and young people and had this extraordinary summer living on a beach hut. I had sort of forgotten I did this, lived <laughs> on a beach and taught English every day, yeah. It sounds idyllic, really. So 
Two degrees, English and French at the University of Warwick. Then after your travel, you go back to Oxford and yeah. study women's studies. Yeah. Tell us more about that. That was the most incredible year of my life. So I was deciding, I, I'd been doing an internship at the UN and had this job offer to go and become a consultant there. And I kind of knew I wanted to study a bit more just because I wanted to, I didn't want to just be a consultant forever. So I had this offer at SOAS, which is much more kind of in the international development side of gender equality. And this offer at Oxford, where it was going back to the humanities and the English, the French, the history. And I knew what I wanted to do, but I it felt that SOAS was more relevant to my field of work. But in my heart, I just thought, I, I'd applied to Oxford at undergrad and hadn't got in and it wasn't, no one in my family has even it's not something that has even been approached and it, it was a big dream for me in itself to study Oxford but also there was something really fascinating about the idea of being able to have this really rich multidisciplinary study of yeah women and feminism and gender equality and I just thought it might not be the most sensible thing career-wise but I think it's what I want to do and it was there actually when I felt free to finally explore acting which I'd always loved but never sort of thought could be a career option, writing, all of the things. I would say everything that has led me to where I am now started at Oxford. It was a place of opportunity for mm. me. It mm. really was. So acting, let's talk about your acting <laughs> career, because I guess you're best known as an actress. Yeah, so far, I suppose that is true. Yeah, Maybe not for long. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the breaking into that, though, because that's famously the hardest bit to do, isn't it? Yeah, it's really difficult. And I think there's before you even get to that point, for me, there was this big question of, is this really something I want to do? You know, like I've got a job offer for the United Nations and I've got these two degrees and do I really want to throw it all away and just start from scratch with something that probably will never work out because it doesn't work out in all of the stories you hear. But there's just something about the idea of being able to tell stories and I think that's also now become something I can explore through writing. But at the time it was about being able to step into someone else's shoes, have an understanding of the world through their eyes and maybe be able to share something that somebody else might connect to in, in whatever way. So after Oxford, I did a one-year postgrad course at the Oxford School of Drama, which was nearby. It was just the one I applied to and thought, let's do this. And yeah, I did love it. And from there, got an agent from our showcase and then have been very lucky, or my mum would say blessed, not lucky, but I have been working since. I did my first job. It was an amazing play called The Watsons, directed by Sam West and written by Laura Wade. And she kind of... It was an unfinished Jane Austen novel and the characters all decided to tell their own story, create their own destiny. So I was sort of like the youngest daughter of the wealthy family and I became a commander in the army or something fun, you know, <laughs> just bonkers and fun. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you've worked consistently on television too. Yeah. You've been in Doctors. Yeah. Everyone's been in Doctors, haven't they? First TV job. It's a staple. I actually quite liked it. I played someone quite evil. It's quite fun. Just selling homework. And your most recent role was in Cymbeline at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah, absolutely. So that was really exciting. I've never done any Shakespeare before and didn't particularly think I wanted to but that offer came up and Greg Doran's last show as well which was quite exciting and it was an amazing couple of months being in Stratford and the company were really close and I think it being his last show there was a sense of joy about it also the play is we explored so many topics through that play you know it explores grief and parenthood and loss and love and also has a really strong amazing female character Imogen who I guess it's a coming-of-age story for her in a way. So I was understudying her as well, so I got to play her, which was incredible. Mm. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And your own production company. Tell us about Cassini. Yes, that was a lockdown baby, which I think a lot of people had these ideas suddenly. But I had had that year after drama school and been working as an actor and 
all was going well and then was about to start a gig in the West End. Lockdown happened, that got shut down. But I wanted to keep creating. I was working for the UN the whole time, but I didn't feel that my creativity was being able to be expressed. So I had the idea with a friend to make a short film around the life of Dido Elizabeth Bell, who I briefly write about in the book. She was Britain's first biracial heiress and she grew up with her cousin. They grew up as sisters and equals and it's a really fascinating period in history. Um, There's already a film about it but inspired by her life we started creating this other story about what it would be like if these two sisters, cousins were growing up together and we centred it around this question of one of them's pregnant and they don't know what to do so it's just a really beautiful short film but from making that I kind of realised oh I want to do more of this and actually I don't just want to make films I think I want to create things that make a difference and that can tell these kind of stories that I don't necessarily see being told and maybe do other things along the way. So bring people in who wouldn't normally get experience on a film set, people like me who wanted to be an actor and never dreamt of it being a possibility. So I ended up founding a company, Cassini Productions, to kind of bring all of that together. And I didn't think about where it would end up. I think I just thought, this is what I'm going to do for Mm. now. But we've ended up making I don't even know how many films we made anymore and had this fund Black and British Impact Fund and do a lot of work also in the community so we've been able to bring to life projects like a Caribbean Meals on Wheels in Newport which is also bizarrely where my grandparents are from so that was in 2021 amazing woman called Sandra just fed elderly people in Newport with the food that they love so Meals on Wheels but with the food that they associate with home things like that which is extraordinary really when I think about it now so Mm. I'm, I'm very proud of it of all that the company's doing. Mm. And just tell me about a couple of the documentaries that you've made. Yeah, I mean, we've had all sorts. So one of them, the track explores homelessness based on a true story about a man who was refused entry to a hotel. He'd been given a hotel for the night, refused entry and got so cold that he sadly passed away. So this looks at his story loosely based on it and fictionalises that, but just tells that narrative just to kind of bring to light that and work. We worked with three charities on that film. I always try and work with a charity. If I'm making a film about a particular topic, I always try and work with an organisation that is actively working in that field. So that was really important. And then my, I suppose the film I'm most proud of is very true to... Well, it's my own story. It's called 54 Days, and that is still on the festival circuit. It's about a young woman who starts wild swimming every day for 54 days after she loses her father to suicide. And with my own story, it was my friend, but this was kind of my healing journey was through swimming and work with Papyrus, who I'm a very proud ambassador for. They're the UK's national charity for young suicide prevention. So worked with them on it and also worked with Soulcap, who kind of are making swimming more inclusive. So, you know... Swimming hats don't normally fit on hair like mine. So thinking about how films can be more than just films, Mm. how can they be living, breathing tools that can help people see the world differently or inspire or heal, provide hope. Mm. Yeah. The UN connection. Yeah. You're a gender advisor. You still work for the UN. Yeah. Essentially, you did take yeah. the job. Yes, I did take the job. I did. I don't. Yeah. Uh, tell us about that role. It's incredible. So I'm gender equality advisor. So I work across all of our projects and look at them and make sure that we are considering gender equity and gender equality, thinking about how we can make sure that we're being inclusive. And that was how the role started. So working across all of the other projects. So it's the United Nations Institute for Training and Research. So it's all sorts of training, peacekeeping training programs, trainings in Colombia, trainings in all across the African continent. But then was able to, over the past couple of years, be able to really forge, I suppose, my own path 
bring my own projects and passions in. So I've got a project I'm very proud of with the Premier League, which is a leadership, gender equality and mental health programme. So we designed the leadership programme for them, the curriculum, and it's rolled out across the Premier League's community clubs. And they use sport. The idea is to find that girl that would never put her hand up and say, pick me, you know, find that person and hold a hand out to her and say, you know, we've got the UN, the Premier League here, and we want to, we think that you're a leader and you're, you've got something to offer. So that had its pilot phase and really looking to roll that out and make it a lasting programme because it's been so inspiring working Mm. on that. I mean, any of these areas that we're talking about would have been enough to make you (laughs) extraordinary. But now you've written this wonderful book. It's called This Thread of Gold. And you explain right at the beginning of the book where that comes from. Explain the title to us. Yeah, there's an amazing song called Sea Silk by Kitty McFarlane. She's a friend of mine. And it's based on the life of an incredible woman called Chiara Vigo, who's Sardinian. And she is the last remaining person on earth who weaves sea silk. So she dives down and collects the silk from the sea and she weaves it into essentially shimmering gold. And I was just fascinated by the idea of this because I like thinking about what happens in these spaces where women thrive and are not influenced by any, I suppose, opinion that the world might put on them. So I got really inspired by this and then did more research and, you know, tapestry and quilt making and got very interested in Harriet Powers, who was an African-American woman. And then I started thinking about wider and just thought the gold and the thread and the tapestry and it all comes together. And I think it speaks to the wider message also of the book, which is that we are all weaving it together. We are collectively building, sewing, weaving this tapestry. And the gold is because, yeah, we're, we're all equally brilliant and shining. And mm. I think it's it speaks to all of those things. And, of course, the subtitle is A Celebration of Black Womanhood. This is not about women as victims. It's about women who seize the initiative. It's about women shining their light, if yeah. you like. The book's divided essentially into three sections. Yeah. Talk us through it. Yeah, so... I wish I could tell you where they came from. They're called Recreation, Reclamation and Resilience. I don't really know how they came about, but I do know that I wrote the book with those sections already in mind. And I think I was thinking about the kind of life cycle of how resilience ultimately is where we end up, how resilience plays out. So what do we do? We start by reclaiming. So, you know, often we can't change things. We can't change a law that's in place necessarily or we can't change certain people's opinions but we can say okay I accept that now let me reclaim it so that was how that first segment came about and I just thought this is a good place to start because I don't want it to be a book that feels unrealistic you know I think it's really important that we acknowledge and I just sort of leave it at that there are oppressions that exist of course there are but this is not a book that wants to talk about them these oppressions are there here is how we overcome them. So that was kind of the reclaiming aspect. And you talk about silence, defiance and reinvention within yeah. that. Yeah. Who are the women that you highlight in that first part? I highlight Diane Abbott is the main focus of the defiance aspect, just because she is a figure that has met so much controversy, some of it merited, some of it not. And I think that's also important. I'm not trying to say that people don't make mistakes, because of course they do, but it's. I was interested in the good she'd done and how she what, what we can learn from her. So I was really interested in her, her as kind of a defiant character who has just withstood a lot. Also thinking about how that affects her because I think we forget that 
this can really take its toll. Mm. And Hattie McDaniel, I kind of ended up writing a whole chapter on Hattie McDaniel. She's really the only woman that got a whole chapter to herself. I just got really obsessed with her. So she is reinvention because she was the first black person ever to win an Oscar. And we we often forget about her and think Sidney Poitier is, but he was actually just the first black man. Mm. But Hattie McDaniel was the first black person ever at a time where there was no precedent for what that might look like. And she won the Oscar for playing Mammy in the film Gone with the Wind, which is incredibly controversial because Mammy is essentially, well, she's sort of a continuation of slavery in some ways. So the black community were really offended by this portrayal and the white community also were still seeing her as subservient. And Hattie McDaniel kind of just had to keep reinventing herself and saying, I don't really mind what you think of me or what you think of me. I'm doing what I know to be true for me and I believe that I'm contributing to the future of the motion picture industry and the future of how black people are perceived. And I think it's only now, really, that I'm seeing that people might reconsider her contribution. And still, she's not incredibly well known for who she is. I just, I thought about that reinvention as, it gave me quite a lot of courage, I think, because Mm. it's very hard to know what's right when you're being told one thing on one side, one thing on another. And her huge dignity. I mean, she wasn't allowed to go to the ceremony with no. the rest of the white cast. I mean, it was absolutely appalling. Yeah, yeah. She was oh, sat she, at, a bat at the she, back. She dealt with it with such grace. Have you watched the video of her accepting it? Oh, It's just extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. It makes me cry every single time I watch it. Yeah. Now, the second part of the book is recreation, and that looks at black women's innovation in creating their situations anew. Tell us more. Yeah, this is a really interesting aspect, and I think this was... I think perhaps it starts in some of the more rigorously academic... It's not academic, but a lot of that is kind of thinking about movement. So it's called formation. It's not academic, actually, because it starts with Beyonce. Um, (laughs) I use the metaphor of her song, Formation, how everyone must come together. But we look at some of these thinkers from the 20th century and how there was this whole movement of black women at that time who were changing how we think about ideas such as modernism and who were contributing to literary and philosophical movements. So a lot of that ended up being rooted in some of my studies in French. So some of the women like the Nardal sisters who really created modernism and weren't credited. That credit went to men of the time. But I also look at an amazing book called Victoire by Marie Condé, and she writes about her grandmother's life. And Victoire was this fascinating woman who, she didn't have any qualifications and she didn't even, I think she got her first pair of shoes when she was 16. And she lived in Guadeloupe, she didn't speak French and she ended up working for a very important French-speaking family But she managed to uplift her daughter through her cooking. And cooking was her way of, I guess, leaving her mark. And it was her own form of creativity. And I got fascinated by that because I think of my own grandmother and cooking is the time I have most seen her be in control. And we're from a huge family and we'd all be cramped in our house every Christmas and she'd be feeding us all. And it's through cooking, bizarrely, that I've been able to get to know her better and my aunt the aunt I stayed with in Jamaica she taught me to cook Caribbean food and it's something that we often dismiss because it seems so gendered to speak about cooking in that way but actually there's a real sense of empowerment that can Mm. come from those spaces and I think reclaiming that and seeing that as a core of creativity is actually it's so exciting. Mm. Formation is one chapter also warrior queen and pioneer. Yeah so warrior and Queen and Pioneer. I think Warrior is a really interesting one because I think we sort of hear that word 
She's such a warrior. And I wanted to also turn on its head that idea of being a strong woman and being a strong black woman. I think a warrior really feeds into that. But actually, I looked at women who really do... Firstly, they show that strength can be shown in different ways, but also they really do display strength in the traditional sense. And one of them is Audrey Lord. And I just looked at some of her work and looked at it anew because I thought some of these quotes are what she wrote when she was battling cancer. She was dying of cancer. And we've sort of taken some of these quotes out of context. And actually, that chapter, Warrior, and that whole idea of, of Audrey Lord teaching me what strength means was really transformational to me. And I, I wrote about something very, very hard in that chapter that I don't think I ever, I hadn't even thought about. I wrote about a physically abusive relationship I was in when I was very young and I have sort of blacked it out of my mind, I think, the whole time since then. And it, I, don't, I don't go into that at all. I actually go into how I have been able to deal with that now in my late 20s. But I think being able to find that through the words of someone who lived all of these years before me um, and was battling something physical, it's been really, really, yeah, it's been it's been powerful. Mm. Queen, I mean, Beyonce features a lot. <laughs> she does. I'm sorry. <laughs> actually, no apologies for Beyonce. <laughs> well, actually, this is a good point, just to throw in the bit that you've got a playlist that goes with this yes, book. Yes, Which I, I love that idea. I'm, I often ask writers who they're listening to, or indeed if they can listen to music while they play. So, for instance... Would you believe Elif Shafak listens to uh, heavy metal while she writes? What? I heavy know, metal? right? But maybe because it's so all-consuming, then your mind goes into hyper-focus, maybe? Yeah, I don't know. I've always found that oh. just bizarre. Yes. When you read her work and you yes. think this... Like, <laughs> just so <laughs> desperate. Yeah. But anyway, you have this playlist that goes along and there are specific songs for specific chapters. Yeah. Just explain that to us. Well, it's it's a book that's infused with creativity and a lot of the women, of course, we look at political figures and all sorts of other figures, but a lot of the women are actually creatives and I think it's very hard to be thinking about them and diving into their work and researching them and not be inspired and infused with what they've created. And actually, for me, music kind of seeped its way into every word and I think often I look at it and I think, I've almost written poetry here in a non-fiction book. I think it has actually influenced how I've written it as well it kind of then made sense to share it with the reader as well so they can see maybe where my mind was at and also it's a chance to look more at some of the women you know we've got a song from Hattie McDaniel a song from Beyonce not all of them obviously are singers or released songs but mm. it's another element I think that takes the reader on a new journey of their own and would you recommend that people listen to those songs as they read the book Maybe. I know some people can't have noise in the background, but I think if you're someone that doesn't mind a song in the background, I don't think any of the songs, they're not heavy metal, let's put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. What do you think the appeal of Beyonce is? I think she speaks to movement. So I remember the time I was living in Paris and she kind of spoke to the feminist movement of that time and she used Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's poetry from We Shall Be Feminists in her work about, you know, we teach women to shrink themselves. And she kind of used movements at the time and she speaks to them. And then I think, you know, with Lemonade, which was probably the most influential album for me, it really spoke to this particular context we were in at the time. And even now, Renaissance is speaking to, I suppose, and it's fitting because, are we still in June, Pride Month? Are we all in July now? July. July. Oh, well, still, <laughs> we're kind of in Pride Month, you know. Yeah. She taps into, I think, 
a feeling and expresses it. And she's also just an incredible creative and business person. And, you know, she's she really does go for things. Mm, mm. The last part of the book is resilience how we illuminate black women's continuous capacity to rise. You talk about grandmother, mother and daughter. And daughter, yeah. I know you find particularly moving. Yeah, I was fascinated. The whole book, I think you can tell, is it looks at these connections, intergenerational connections. And I always had the idea that somehow, I didn't know how, but I wanted to look at grandmother and mother and daughter and kind of end then with where do we go from here? So grandmother, I looked at, what we learned from our grandparents, my own grandmother included, and also looked at how Claudette Colvin, who was kind of left out of the civil rights movement, she actually gave up her seat on a bus before Rosa Parks, but was young and not from the right part of town. But thinking about what that tells us, some of the Windrush generation women, so thinking about these ancestors, moving into mother, my own mother, and then I thought about the mothers, mothers of the Black Lives Matter movement, people we hear about their children who've been killed and we don't ever think about the women who raised them so just thinking Mm. about what it means to be a mother I suppose and coming into daughter I never knew what that would be and that chapter started the morning after Roe v Wade was overturned and I started writing something not to do with the book just imagining what I would say to a girl who's going to grow up and not have safe and legal access to abortion Mm. but it ended up being a letter to my future daughter, the daughter I hope I will one day have and it's simply telling her what I hope and dream for her life and it, it is my favourite chapter of the book now because it stands alone it's just this letter and it's yeah, it's quite lyrical and I guess it's also what I wish for myself it's what my dad said after I read it at the book launch and I thought, oh, maybe it is Well, you know what, your parents can be incredibly proud <laughs> What a stellar career you're under 30 and this book which has got extraordinary reviews. I mean, I would point listeners just to chapter one, the first page. There are so many literary references to so many different writers just within that. I'm so happy you've got that. I'm so happy. (laughs) Just within that first paragraph, you're just name-checking everybody without saying their names at all. Just little quotes from their work. I think it's absolutely fascinating. And the last line of that page is, I am my mother's daughter. I am raised by lionesses. I love that. (laughs) I love you. I love this book. (laughs) Love you too. Thank you. This has been the most joyful conversation. (laughs) Absolutely. The book is called This Thread of Gold, A Celebration of Black Womanhood. It's written by Catherine Joy White. It's published by Dialogue Books and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, thanks to the production team of Christy O'Grady and Helmi Pillai. And you can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>